Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Ben Arnott, and I'd like to welcome you to the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast, Australia's first barbecue podcast. This is episode nine of a series that I like to call Comp Ready, where I interview Australia's best pitmasters, builders, butchers, and suppliers to help you be comp ready. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, and share it around to spread the love. If you're into competition barbecue, you might be interested in my free ebook. 27 Lessons Learned from Competition Barbecue. I've drawn on my experience as both competitor and judge to offer you exclusive inside knowledge to help you make the most of your competition experience. Head to smokinghotconfessions.com slash comp dash ready to get your copy now. There's also a link in the description. Folks, thank you for joining me today for this very special episode. So far in the series, we've been looking strictly at the barbecue side of Competition Barbecue. But starting today, we're going to have a look at some of the businessy aspects of competitive barbecue, starting with branding. To help us out with this, the ever-representing brother Ralph Barnett from the Shank Brothers is joining me for a chat. If you haven't heard of the Shank Brothers, you might just be living under an actual rock. The Shank Brothers are without a doubt Australia's highest profile barbecue team. This is not only because they consistently turn out top 10 quality barbecue, but because they are also deadly consistent in their branding, which is so important for building a public profile. You've seen him on TV as one half of the winning team of Aussie Barbecue Heroes, and now it's time to let his dulcet tones fill your ears. Check it out. This is the Smoking Hot Confessions Podcast with barbecue pitmaster Ben Arnott. How long has it been since your last confession? Welcome to the confessional, Brother Ralph. The first thing I have to ask is, what was the last thing you barbecued? Oh, Ben, well, I'm going to talk about the last thing of interest that I've barbecued. And um, I've got to say, it was at what we called the Shankenwurst, which was um, actually emu and pork beer-infused sausage, specifically designed for Oktoberfest, or Oktoberfest in this case. And um, it was a great collaboration with uh, Burley Brewing. And, uh, yeah, it was something that we've never tried before. And it tasted, yeah, spot on. I did see that on Facebook and it looked incredible. It, 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 was, uh, it, it was ingenuitive. It was uh, inventive. And uh, it, it just looked fantastic. Yeah, we're, we're always trying to create new things uh, and, and steer away from the old cliches. And so this was a, a great example of just going a bit off, off-road and uh, seeing where it takes us. In this case, it was down to the back paddock where the emus were hanging out. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. All right. I haven't had a chance to actually personally congratulate you, so I'm going to do it now. I realize it's late. Um, congratulations on winning the first season of Aussie Barbecue Heroes. So uh, tell us everything. How did you get onto the show and what was it like being on the show? You know, that was, a, that was an adventure and a half, that's for sure, last year. Um, I think to, to answer your first question about how do we get on the show, um, for some reason I think Mike sent me uh, an audition application, said should we do this or not, and uh, I said, well, let's meet up down at Brewski Pub and we'll talk about it. So four points later, I think we've recorded almost a, an anti-audition videotape where we, we said the, the executives at Channel 7 that they'd be lucky to have us on the show and we told them what we thought of, of Koshi's barbecuing skills and um, then we sent the tape off and the next day they called up and said, we're very interested in chatting to you guys and um, it just went from there. Uh, we had to submit a lot of recipes. Uh, they flew up a production team and, and filmed us cooking to make sure that we could sort of back up 
what we said we could cook, and and before you know it, we're we're on on the shoot doing it. Wow! So, so the so the secret cool. is to is to trash Koshi. Yeah, well, I think that is the secret to any success in life, isn't it? I mean, you've got to jump on the bandwagon, and you know, it, it can only produce a, a good outcome. <laughs> you were um, uh, you were cooking some pretty amazing things on the show. Um, how were you able to keep all that information in your head? Well, I think for us, um, you know, Mike and I are, are so in tune with each other, and although we're very different and come from different spaces. Um, we what we decided to do on the show was just really break it down into, uh, I guess, key points where if Mike was thinking about a particular style of salad, then he would store that information in his head. I would focus on, say, a particular sauce or a, a way to cook a protein. So we'd divide and conquer, that's for sure. And um, a lot of the stuff we'd, we'd been thinking about and letting the juices flow over over a a short period of time just to you know just to think what if, if well if we end up in this scenario we'll, we'll let's go and cook something like this so you know it was all sort of percolating around and um yeah we just tapped into that sounds awesome so the big question is how has winning the show changed your life well it's funny you know you talk about the word changing your life and um you know winning a million dollars springs to mind. But, you know, I, I've talked to Mike about this and, and it has genuinely changed both our lives because the um, the experience itself was amazing and then to have the bonus of uh, an incredible prize pool on top was was really life-changing. I mean, for Mike, he had never really owned a brand-new vehicle and he was kicking around in a beaten-up Jeep and um, I think it was on its last leg. So to be, to be given a brand-new uh, Amarok was just incredible and um, it, Every time I see him driving around, he's got a huge smile on his face. Uh, and for me, I've got a young family. I've got two young children, and um, that caravan has already provided us with incredible uh, holidays uh, all up and down the eastern coast of Australia. And we're doing stuff we, we never could have done prior to winning that. Uh, and then the little sweetener on top, I think the, the year's supply of groceries through IGA was um, just an unexpected super bonus where – it felt like uh, you're the sort of crazy superstar walking into an IGA, just throwing stuff into your um, into your basket, like all these exotic ingredients and stuff that you'd never normally buy. But um, we could just throw them in, and that meant more experimentation and testing. And you know, I, I've tried stuff I'm, I'm unable to touch, like truffle salt and, and all this sort of reduction stuff. It's it's incredible. Sounds amazing. So did they give you like a little uh, platinum IGA card that you get to pull out like a policeman's badge and flash as you're walking out the door? Yeah, that's it. That's it. We, we had these special little cards that we could sort of slide across the, the table and all the IGA girls would go weak at the knees and go, wow, you guys must be superstars. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Something like that anyway. Yeah. So how did the road to Aussie Barbecue Heroes begin? What's your earliest barbecue memory? Well, I think in, in, in the context to the, the Barbecue Heroes journey um, and my earliest memory specifically with Mikey was um, one evening I invited him over for dinner and it was it was just the early stage of cooking low and slow and I, I just wanted to you know, see if he was into it or not and uh, thought I'd throw a little, a little special treat in, in my smoker and I um, got him in there and as he walked out on the back deck, I lifted the lid and there was a smoked pig's head staring him in the face. <laughs> 
And I surprise. Thought, uh, well, yeah, surprise. Uh, and um, look, when he when he bit off the ear and later was picking away at the, the head and pulled out an eyeball and gave it to me, I sort of thought, well, I think we're going to make a pretty good pair here. He's he's the kind of guy that will try everything. He loves just like eating secondary cuts and was ripping into the jowl. I think it's his Czech background, but um, that's the sort of guy that I want to cook barbecue with. Um, so that was kind of an early memory with um, Mike. But, um, yeah, it just went from strength to strength. We're, we're both from uh, an advertising um, background communication industry, so we had a lot in common. Uh, we love storytelling and, and love cooking. So that was, that was really the, the first seed that, that led us down the track of um, being on the show. And from little things, big things grow, hey? Absolutely. Yeah, it's all the journey. As I said before, uh, you were cooking some really impressive dishes on that show. Um, what is it that makes Shank Brothers Barbecue so unique? Well, I think um, for us, uh, it's all about creativity. And um, when, we, when we went on the show, we said um, beforehand, as we sat down and gave ourselves a, a bit of a pep talk, we said we'd stick to certain key principles and you know we, we wanted to make sure that everything we did had a sense of creativity we didn't want to just be what i'd call meat puppets or meat muppets where you're just replicating anything that you see on youtube or that classic american style so we wanted to to show our personality through that through the food and and obviously you've probably seen in the show we, we wanted to cook with alcohol or at least use it um i think mike at some point got a bottle of whiskey taken off by the producers as we we, we tried to sip it um, when cameras weren't uh, looking. Uh, and another principle was was cooking with smoke. We we really love cooking with smoke and n- no detail about the barbecue show was shared with us prior to shooting. So we were under initial impression that it might be a sort of a barbecue pitmaster show and we we're like, yeah, we, we, we're all over that. And then when we turned up, we saw these Webbers sitting there and tell you what, the look on Mike's face was, uh, was not pretty. <laughs> He's not a fan of the gas grill. We don't talk about gas, although, look, in reality, I think that they have a, they have a place and they're very, very handy and I've got a gas barbecue at home. and um, So, you know, they, they certainly can fulfil a certain need, but for us um, it was all about low and slow and fire and charcoal and wood. Absolutely. Yeah. You recently took out your first grand champion at Bangalore Barbecue and Bluegrass Festival. What was that experience like and how does it compare to winning Aussie Barbecue Heroes? Well, firstly, Ben, I, I think that um, the Bangalore Festival is one of the best festivals I've been to this year, not because we won Grand Champion, but because the format allowed all the um, public to buy and sample the team's food. And the, the spirit that that created and the, just the weekend became unforgettable for a lot of teams and especially for us, the experience of um, getting our, our mating Grand Championship was was really special. Um, we've been trying really hard all year, and I think ninety uh, percent of our team performances have ended up in a top ten finish. But we never quite snagged it. And um, look, the only the only disappointing factor was that um, Mike was obviously off in, in the US, but um, he was there in spirit with us, and um, we went on um, knowing that all the stuff we'd collectively learned throughout the year we were still putting into practice. So in a weird kind of way, maybe the, the little ashes were Mike's grey beard smiling up at us saying, go boys. Um, so, yeah, as far as that goes against um, winning Barbecue Heroes, they're just two very different beasts. I think the, the pressure and expectation 
um, in a media sense for the, the show was the pressure cooker situation was a lot more fierce. Um, the, I think that winning a barbecue competition here in Australia is, is fantastic and we get a lot of fun from it, but it just didn't quite have the same gravity and, uh, and stress levels and anxiety that a show can bring. But, um, I, I still love it and that's what drives a lot of these teams to go back. Uh, week after week, year after year, and compete because it is bloody hard, and it's it's very difficult to 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 walk up and and get any position. So very exciting. Absolutely. So how many uh, competitions did you did you go into this year? I think we entered about seven or eight um, across the country. We started off down at Meatstock, and we did it FIFO style, where we flew in completely uh, lean, mean, drunken machine. And um, had an incredible result. We we just we just couldn't believe it. Um, and I think we finished third overall out of uh, I think about uh, seventy teams. Um, this was going up against you know all the big guns, and yeah, very happy with that. And all the way down to um, a couple of local shows, um, regional, and um, obviously the big Queensland ones. And yeah, so had a lot of fun. I'm interested in the idea of the uh, of the fly in fly out barbecue competition. Did you uh, like put all your gear in a truck and have it uh, sent down in transport, or did you have someone lined up at the other end for you to borrow gear from? How did that work? Yeah, I think exactly that. We um, it's great having friends in smoky places. So we we hooked up with um, some guys down in Sydney. And um, we also got um, some friends up here, the, the Brisbane Barbecue Mafia, who were also going down to compete to squeeze in a few extra little pro cues into into spaces. So um, that was that was so great. We couldn't have done it without the, the the help of various people. So that was that was fantastic. It enabled us to jump on a plane, tick back, have a bourbon, and arrive and, and just set up with minimal gear. It really is amazing just how helpful and accommodating the competitive barbecue scene is considering that it is actually a competition and yet everybody just yeah. gets in and just helps everybody out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, you'll see it all the time and you'll hear it from teams time again. You know, we've, we've borrowed, big borrowed and stolen stuff from opposing teams and, and vice versa and provided gear and, you know, we're all doing it because we're in it really together, um, sometimes not for the win but just – to share a great weekend and make it memorable and you don't want to go away with a negative experience and the camaraderie of your next door neighbor and everyone around the, the, um, the grounds is, is what it's all about for me. And I think the rest of the guys in our team and, and most of the teams cooking would probably have the same story. You're listening to the smoking hot confessions podcast with barbecue pit master, Ben Arnott. So, Ralph, as I said at the top of the show, I've invited you here to talk about branding. So I can see already that you've got your Shank Brothers shirt on and your Shank Brothers hat. And uh, one thing that anybody notices, I, I mean, I've got mine on as well. So one thing that uh, anybody that goes to a barbecue competition will notice is that every single team will have their, their gear on. So what I wanted to talk about today, because we're here to, to help out uh, up-and-coming new barbecue competition teams, what exactly is branding and how important is it for barbecue teams to have good branding? Well, I think for me, you know, I'm in the business of branding twenty four seven. It's my it's my chosen profession. I love it. I'm passionate about it. And to to probably um, uh, explain it in a, in a real quick sentence is essentially branding. I think is standing for something unique. Um, it's that unique presence and personality in the world. And and most brands want to be known for either a particular expertise or an attitude. 
in this case, I think in the in the barbecue scene, um, I think putting together something unique that represents your personality in the in the cooking space and and drives a, a certain attitude and and. If you can create a brand with certain attitude, it, it quickly conveys to the other barbecue teams around you um, your own perspective and 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 how you want to be seen by the barbecue and community. So you get a lot, you know, you get a real spectrum. Some brands are uh, all about just fun, and you can see that reflected in their names. Other brands might be reflecting a uh, a commercial business, and therefore the name can be can be at the other end of the spectrum. But essentially. Um, it's all about standing out and and um, getting that quick recall and and making it memorable. It's interesting uh, that you've talked about um, having a unique presence because that leads sort of directly into my next question. Um, I've actually noticed when I go to competitions is that yes, people have their own merch, uh, their own shirts, banners, hats. They also have a different theme. So when I was having my logo designed, I was watching a lot of Sons of Anarchy, and. Uh, and have ended up with a bit of a outlaw biker looking logo. That was my wife's contribution. Uh, she said it had to look like a biker patch. Um, how did the Shank brothers come up with their theme and what would be your advice to a new team on deciding on a theme? Well, the, we had a, a lovely little moment where Mike and I were working together professionally on a, uh, on a television commercial campaign. We're sitting in a, in a business, in, in a boardroom talking about, we should have been talking about work, but we were just talking about barbecue. And Mike's producer, lovely lady cat, just sort of stepped in and said, God, guys, I might as well call you guys the Shank Brothers the way that you're just carrying on. And and it just stuck, you know. It, it Usually I'm the one having to come up with names and you spend days and months building brands, but Cat just sort of descended from heaven and, and, and laid out this beautiful little moment and the name Shank Brothers stuck and we decided to use it. Uh, in an up-and-coming um, barbecue competition, and I designed a logo overnight. Um, yeah, it just felt good, and we, we sort of just felt like it was a, a little snowball that just gathered momentum, and, you know, it was really fun to do. I've got a, a big visual background, so I treat this like a little hobby brand, and, uh, yeah, we, ju- we just see where it works and, and develop it from there. All righty. The other essential element for any team is a catchy name. Uh, what should new teams consider when putting together a name? Well, I think um, it really depends on the team. So you've really got to decide between yourselves what is your personality? What is the personality, the collective personality of the team? And then really what do you want to do with your team? Um, if it's just purely about having fun, then you, you can – create a name or think of a name that gets giggles and all that kind of stuff. And we see plenty of that, but you know, some teams want to get serious. They're, they're looking at um, business opportunities and um, all that sort of stuff. So, you know, if you, if you're thinking about opening a restaurant down the track, you're not going to call yourself butt smokers, right? You, you, you're going to probably think of a more commercially viable name. I think that depends also, what the restaurant is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and then, obviously, if, if you are getting serious about it, um, you need to look at any any copyright or legal considerations because you, know, you could have the same name as, as another um, restaurant in Australia or um, another product. So you don't want that knock at the door and um, someone saying, hey, um, you've got the same name as us and you've just printed off all your own merchandise and um, all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, it's the, the, the um, world's your oyster as far as names go. But um, for me personally, I think keep it relatively short because then it's memorable and it's got that recall factor and people can can quickly play back your brand's name. 
Where would you recommend people look to double check that they're not um, not uh, infringing on someone else's name? There are there are various uh, checking sites online for business names. So um, there are government sites where you can we can do a search, uh, and um, that would be the first port of call. Usually, a lot of brands they also register the domain name with a .com or .com.au. So the first thing I'd ever do is type in your name followed by .com or .com.au and nothing comes up, then that's a good start. That's a hot tip. Thank you very much. Uh, you had said yeah. before that, um, that you're quite visual. So this is a good question then for you, the next one. Um, some teams have very simple logos, whereas others are quite ornate. So what makes a good logo and what do people need to consider when designing a logo? Well, I think the key there, the, the key word in that question really is design. And I see a lot of logos, and especially in the space like the barbecue space where like everyone wants to have a bit of a crack. They want to print their T-shirts tomorrow. Um, I think give your design some consideration. So if you have got access to a graphic designer or if you do feel like you need to invest that time and energy and sometimes a bit of money, then I would highly recommend that. I see too many brands where you give it a crack in some pretty bad um, visual publishing applications, and you know, at the end of the day, it, it might do do its job, um, but it, it just um, it won't stand out. And uh, I think the guys that have made a real effort in on the scene here in Australia have um, all used or worked with professional graphic designers to to ensure that they're unique. You know, if you start googling stuff, you end up with this, the same old. Um, cliche imagery and icons that we've all used and abused and um, you've just got to stand out because that's the whole point of creating a brand, right, is to be unique. Yeah, I I, uh, can't actually tell you how many times I've seen that that big happy pig face incorporated into into so many different logos and on the side of vans and things. Absolutely, absolutely. All right, so you've got your theme, your name and your logo. Then it's time to get some merch. Your team needs to look like a cohesive unit. So uh, at Smoking Hot Confessions, we have branded T-shirts, hoodies, and aprons. What do you consider to be essential merch for a first-time competitive team? Well, we've, I guess, um, discovered along the way that um, the best merch you can ever produce is functional merchandise because it's all well and good printing stuff that might look cool on, on various applications, but if you're sitting there in winter freezing your ass off um, and trying to find a jacket. Uh, if you don't have a jacket that's all merged up, well, then you can't promote your brand. So something functional like a, a hoodie or a T-shirt, first and foremost, um, keep the sun off you, so cap, all that sort of stuff. Um, that would be the first protocol. Um, for us, the next the next big item that we identified as, as really having to focus on getting the merch right or at least getting the brand right was our marquee because in the barbecue scene, in the comp scene, everyone has to have a marquee. You've got to, you know, it's for shelter, it's for sun protection, um, it's to keep out your neighbours so they're not spying on you. Uh, just joking there. So uh, we, we created what's now been coined the Shangri-La, which is uh, it's a pretty cool marquee and uh, a lot of people see it coming or at least can spot it a mile off because it looks like a, a beaten up kind of wooden uh, HQ. And we get a lot of fun from 
putting it up and and um, cooking out of it, and and you know it's really great for again projecting your brand forward. I have seen the uh, seen the Shankrilar a couple of times. It's uh, it's pretty spectacular. <laughs> we do love it, and again, that's 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 only come through fantastic collaboration and sponsorship. So um, Josh from Aussie Barbecues sat down with us and said, "Look, I want to I want to get on board and, and support you guys, and but I, you know I I, I want to make it meaningful." So. Um, we sat down and said, "What well, you know? What the, the best thing that we can do collectively is to um, to brand up our, our marquee and and get it standing out." So, job done. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, indeed, indeed, very much. So, where should new teams be looking to get their merch made, and what should they expect to pay? Have you got any tips for uh, for where to start out? Yeah, look, there's um there's a full spectrum of. Uh, printing options available you can, if you wanted to you could print something on a colored printer and iron it on your t-shirt i've certainly been there before um but but there are a lot of um screen printers and digital printers out there and costs are coming down uh exponentially compared to what they were when when you had to go to a, a silk screen printer years ago and print each individual color so um there's a lot of online places and um a lot of physical stores uh, the setup costs vary. Um, that's something to really factor in. Um, most places still have the setup cost for for a lot of merchy stuff. Um, but once you're over that hurdle, then the cost to then print more um, more t-shirts or any other collateral seems to um, come down a lot. So uh, we use a print bar uh, here in Brisbane, but um, I think every every city has their own little specialist print place that are that are always happy to help and if you if you if you know a printing place that are also passionate about um, low and slow i'm sure they can do contras too you know the old brisket for a few t-shirts would never go astray so you never know the old world of barter could work very nice i like it we've we've got the beer economy in australia so now we've got the brisket economy absolutely and, th- and the brisket dollar is off. strong yeah, yeah. <laughs> the exchange rate's good i like it this segment is proudly sponsored by Coastline Barbecues and Heating. With stores in Oxenford, Southport and the Tweed, they are the Gold Coast's only Weber specialist. All righty, Ralph, it's time for our segment three, in which we're, I'm going to throw some questions at you that have come from the public. And we've got Matt with us here live today, who's going to ask you a question as well. So the first question comes from Brett. He wants to know, do the Shank Brothers have a mission statement and what is the ultimate goal or outcome? Firstly, who, Brett who? Who's asking this question? I think I've got an idea here. Is it, it's not Brett Connell, is it? Uh, perhaps. Well, I, th- I think he's doing some underground bloody snooping here, trying to, trying to steal our mission statement and goal to, to swipe on down for the mongrels. I'm, I'm, I'm cautious here. Got to be cautious. This guy's trouble. He is, he is. He's, he's, he's definitely a dirty mongrel. Yes, he is dirty mongrel. Anyway, Brett, thank you for your um, for your interesting question. Um, look, as far as mission statement, I think we'll, I'll, I'll talk about principles. And I think the Shank Brothers, um, we, we've got certain principles that we we always um, try to connect with, and and one of them is always have fun. So whether it be at a competition, uh, at a uh, at a collaboration, or um, a class. We, we try not to take ourselves too seriously and um, through that comes a really nice experience for all of us involved and, and just just try and uh, get a lot of enjoyment out of it. So, so that's one of our principles. Um, another one is effort in equals reward out for us is, is a biggie. Like um, there's no point in hit, hitting a comp scene and saying, oh, that's a bit crap. We came 58th out of 
59 teams and we only practice once leading into the into the comp or you know with the with the show itself mike and i put a hell of a lot of effort and um you know we 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 got a reward out of it but it was a lot of hard work so um you only get out what you put in um another principle is is the, the whole notion of collaboration so as as a little brand we love the notion of collaborating with um with people with brands um just just to see where it's going to take the scene and um so we're always on the the lookout with um yeah little little whether it be an event um whatever that might be, but yeah, collaborating is always good. And then the fifth one is probably the one that we hold closest and that is to be unique and creative when, when cooking barbecue. It's not just about can we replicate something that we've seen. Um, look, we can, you know, we can push down on a, on a piece of brisket or a, or a piece of meat to show it juicing. That's not what we're about. We're, we're about um, the creativity and not being afraid to try something for the first time. And if it's a, if it's a dud, then that's fine. But um We'd rather do that than just replicate and and be, as I said before, meat muppets. <laughs> I love that term, meat muppets. So just uh, just expanding on that, on what you were just saying there, um, how many times do you practice a new recipe then before you do take it to a competition? We we don't have a set number of practices, um, but certainly, yeah. You know, another one rule of the competition side is that we will never ever turn up um, and, and try something new on the day. Like we will always practice, um, and and we'll, we'll always designate um, a particular protein to uh, um, a person, so then they have a certain amount of ownership and accountability for that for that um, hand in box. Um, and what we found over time is that if we, if we all just sort of kick around and, and hand in one protein, then no one takes that ownership, and and we've seen results dip quite, quite heavily. So when it comes to practice, it's it's really up to the individual team member to practice as much as they need to to get that particular um, hand into a point where they're really happy with it. So if you're nailing it within, you know, a couple, two or three practices, then that's great. But I've certainly been at the other end wrestling with lamb for months on end and, uh, you know, almost giving up in tears and saying, look, this thing's not bloody worth it. And then you push through to the other side and, and life is good and, and the results speak for themselves. And, you know, when you, when you get rewarded with a, with a high place and, you know, that's, that's, that's the great moment to have is, you know, practice makes, makes awesome. So what's your, your particular protein in the, in the team there? Well, as the, as the token kind of former Kiwi, they always look to me whenever the word lamb is mentioned, they go, well, you know how to cook it. Uh, so, so yes, I have um, definitely picked up the mantle over over 2016 uh, for lamb, and uh, yeah, we, but we do like to spread it around. Um, sometimes some uh, some of the members can't make it to particular comps, and so we shift it around. and And that's one thing I really love about cooking with the Shank Brothers is that we can all rotate and pretty much finish each other's sentence or um, dip into any smoking um, moment or protein it and just pick up where the other person left off. We're all, we're all very interconnected like that. Interesting. So to be fair to say then that you specialize in the lead up to a particular comp, but overall you're generalized. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we, we talk enough um, before comps and we all turn up to, to practice days together um, and, and we, we're completely transparent as to how things have gone, um, what to look out for. And I think the, the key thing is, is to be really open and honest. 
So if something's not working, uh, then none of us are afraid to say, look, you know what, the flavor's just not there on that. Or um, look, I, I, I tried that, I cooked it, I'm not happy with it. Um, it we're not here to um, pitter-patter around each other because we, we'll, never, we'll never improve if we're not honest with, with our own um, feedback off of each other or with ourselves. So it helps. So being honest is great. Some uh, some good life lessons there in in general. I'd say beyond just barbecue. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, Jared would like to know what would be your advice for all the up and coming young kids that love low and slow or want to start out. I'm assuming he's talking about say the the high school team from Burley, for example. Okay. So when we mean kids, we mean really like kids, kids. Right. Well, I think um, the key thing is is um, you know, Voodoo Dolls is a uh, a great example where they had a teacher who's really passionate about it and um, organised the team to to support him and, and learn along the way, almost like apprentices. So if you wanted to ease your way, and I think attaching yourself to someone who's already doing it is a great way to to learn, learn the, the basics, learn safety, um, learn what to do and what not to do. And it's really, it's also a lot of fun watching adults um, stuff things up and burn their fingers and stuff. And like for, for young, um, young adults and teenagers and kids, like you can learn very quickly through, through adults' mistakes. So, you know, that's got to be pretty good. Um, you know, if you've got a parent that's into it, then I think um, they're already halfway there. But um, for, yet, for young kids, there's nothing stopping um, high school age kids starting their own team and getting into it. So as long as you've got the basics of fire under control and you're not going to set the marquee or your neighbor's marquee on fire, then, then um, you know, it's the way that we've all been cooking for for a very, very long time. And if we went back to Stone Ages, I'm sure people, you know, 14 to 18 were actually responsible for a lot of the family cooking within the villages. So uh, I say the younger you can start, the better. So uh, my 10-year-old, he's cooking uh, and, and, and using fire and charcoal and I want him to have a clear sense of understanding of how that all works and that it, it really can burn you. Absolutely. I, I believe in, in getting them out young and, and getting them taught about it. Um, my son's four and I, I, I take him out in the backyard and I show him what I'm doing and step by step and I explain how it all works because I want him to know and understand and respect fire and understand that things do burn. And if he does find a, a cigarette lighter or a packet of matches, that's what's going to happen. So my theory is if I teach him that and he understands and respects that, then he's going to be safer in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, wise plan, wise plan. Um, I actually, I, I did the other, when I was a kid, I jumped under the house with a set of matches and uh, was playing around all over the show. And um, and then about three months later, I set the house on fire because I had um, some hot coals that I put in a cardboard box and brought them into the house. And next next minute, <laughs> the whole wall's on fire. So I, I can resonate with what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> I um. I, I don't actually have a have a memory of this, but my it's one of my father's. Uh, now it's one of his favourite stories to tell. He was pretty horrified at the time, but um, we always used to have growing up the uh, you know the the four bricks on the ground with a with a little timber fire in the middle and a sheet of metal across the top. And I was only about three years old, and Dad had cooked a barbecue and then packed it up and taken the uh, the metal top off to clean it up. And I snuck outside and went to go play in the snow. Mm-hmm. And didn't have my shoes on 
and wow. uh, I ended up burning all the bottoms of my feet off and ended up in, in hospital getting them all taken care of. Thankfully, oh. I must have only been two and a half, three years old. I got no memory of it. Um, but uh, yeah, dad, dad always likes to tell me that that was my first experience with barbecue was when I barbecued myself. <laughs> uh, I barbecued myself. There's a song in that. I think so. I think so. All right. The next question, I think, may be a, another cheeky bugger question. It comes from Jay, and he wants to know what's being done about the team members that don't have beards. Oh, Jay, you cheeky little bugger! Oh man, look, I'm I'm testing the waters, um, and I'm getting a lot of tutting from my beardy teammates. But in saying that, I have heard that clean skins, as as apparently we are known for, when when completely shaven. We are the new black of, of barbecue and we've been told so by, by top men's style magazine and wives around the world. And there's some benefits to it, right? It takes 10 years of um, age off your face and it spices things up beyond the old pantry, if you know what I'm saying. So, look, I think there are two types of people here that, as far as beardy people. Um, there are some people who, who you know, who, who use beards to hide these kind of hideous features underneath um, and then there are others who just belong to beards. You know, Mike's a classic for that. He he um, he really is a beardy guy, and he deserves to own that beard and, and be the owner. So, um, but you know, I like to flirt between worlds. Um, I've had a beard. Um, I like to shave as well. So, yeah. Thanks, Jay. I think, by the way, you look very, very handsome with your beard, and and you should keep that. It does beg the question: What is he trying to hide? <laughs> Yeah, true, true. But I think he falls into the second bucket, which is he's a man that owns a beard and um, he, he looks, I think, 50% friendlier with that beard and um, there's a lot of love there in that beard. There is, absolutely. It's it's thick with love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel would like to ask, after winning Barbecue Heroes and being in a grand championship team, uh, do you have any thoughts on a Shank Brothers barbecue book with an Aussie twist? But that's um, that's a really good question, actually. Um, the short answer is yes, of course, we'd love to put out a Shank Brothers barbecue book. Um, we've been researching a few ideas and angles over a few pints into how we would do it. Um, one thing that we don't want to do is produce this kind of same, same barbecue book. Um, I think the world's full of those. Uh, the, the, the competition to, to get any sort of serious sales is, is obviously quite high when it comes to um, barbecue literature. But I think an Australian perspective would be fantastic. Um, there's, a, there's so much diversity and fusion techniques um, that I think it, it would be a really great sort of spine to run through the book. Um, I don't know how, how limited the global appeal of an Australian perspective could be, but I don't know. Watch the space, and I think if there's any listeners that have any unique collaboration ideas, we're always open to it. But um, I think 2017 could be an interesting year of starting to scratch into that space, and um, we'll see where it goes. That is one thing I love about about modern multicultural Australia is we do get to see things like, um, you know, uh, Korean-style rack of pork ribs and, uh, you know, uh, Indian-spiced pork shoulders and all this sort of thing. And I think it's, I think it's a, a real strength of our modern culture that we're able to uh, really adapt and adopt those flavours and bring them into barbecue and barbecue unites people from all those different cultures by, like, through food. And so if, if there was a way to capture that in a barbecue cookbook, to me, that would be like the ultimate Australian twist. 
Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And I think the other ingredient to throw into it is is make it um, make it usable. Uh, I, I own a lot of barbecue books and a lot of cookbooks in general. Where look, I, I love flipping through those pages, but how many recipes have I cooked in it? Not a lot. Um, and then I see other books I own where the pages are falling out and you know the spine's ripping open because I just keep going back because it's information that I can genuinely use on a regular basis. So I think that would be one. Um, one principle that we'd stick by if we were to create a, a Shank Brothers um, piece of collateral. You're exactly right. I've, I've got a bunch of books in my cupboard where, um, you know, same thing. I've looked at one or two and then I've had to go and actually jump on Google and look on Google to try and work out what they're talking about in the book um, because it makes perfect sense to whoever wrote it when they wrote it. Uh, but for the end user, if it's not accessible, then it's not accessible. Yeah. So, <laughs> Definitely some good ideas there. All right. Alan says, Brother Ralphie, how different is it to cook with the new Pro-Q stretch and have you found it next level compared to current cookers or does it do certain proteins better, oh, sorry, and or does it do certain proteins better than others? Hi, Alan. So, yeah, I, I reckon Al's like snooping around too because he's at, he's from the mongrels and, like, he's just ch- trying to check out the competition unit to see, you know, is it genuinely a, a, an advantage over his stuff or, uh, or uh, you know, who knows. But, look, um, Al, as far as the, the, um, the stretch goes, man, I could not be happier with this unit. Like, it's been my dream to own this style of smoker for a number of years now. I've spent a lot of time on um, every barbecue manufacturer's side I can I can remember just seeing the style that I want. And it's only been recently that ProQ have actually, if anything, taken the best of a lot of core concepts within the barbecue uh, manufacturing process and, and put together this style of cabinet smoker. And um, when I saw them uh, in production, I just I just had to have one. And uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been unbelievable. Um, it's a gentle giant. So nothing happens very fast. It's not like you put something in the barbecue, walk away, come back, and things are blazing and out of control. Um, I think as far as smoke quality, it seems very, very solid. Like I, I only ever seem to see beautiful blue smoke, a wisp of blue smoke drifting up through the chimney. And, you know, I've had some struggles on previous barbecues, you know, thick, black, ashy, grey smoke. Um, it's it's just very gentle, if anything, on the mild side, the subtle side. And it's teaching me, if anything, to just ease back on the flavors. I think it's reminding me that some of my previous styles of cooking on other, on other units have actually given too much smoke flavor. And I'm just getting smashed with this kind of smoky meat, whereas um, – recently i've been i've been cooking stuff and even even reheating it and that's the, that's the test when you you know when you reheat reheat those leftovers and and suddenly you're like whoa this is like an ashtray well if you can reheat that that piece of meat and it's tasting just so beautifully seasoned i think you've, you've nailed it so um the unit's great for that um for me as i said before i've got a young family so i want something that i can basically sit and forget so that unit even if you're not running a computer on it you can pretty much dial it in and it's never going to get out of control. You know, it's, it's got a, a, a maze in there so the charcoal burns along at a consistent rate. Um, it's very efficient. So I only use three to four 
fist-sized blocks of wood, whereas, you know, I see guys that are just hacking half trees down. There's, there's forests of iron bark disappearing all over Australia to feed, you know, to feed an offset smoker. But, I, I, A, I don't want to pay for that wood, and, B, I, I just um, I want something that's pretty cost-effective and efficient. So besides paying a million dollars for the smoker, it's a really efficient, efficient machine. <laughs> For the listeners out there who are not familiar with the stretch, can you explain a little bit how it how it works? I mean, it's I, I know that it's not an offset, but is it yeah. um, does it work same as a traditional vertical? Yeah, it, it is essentially a, a big cooking box. It's a vertical cabinet, so um, the, the, there is a firebox at the bottom, and that that provides all the heat. And then in the ash pan underneath, you can put wood in there, and that will provide the smoke. Uh, the cool thing about it is that it's got a really nifty little system which um, is called a reverse flow, which takes all the hot air and smoke, takes it up the side channels, which essentially warms the side walls consistently. And then the smoke enters the cavity up through the top and is drawn down through the entire, um, the entire cabinet and then out the bottom and then back up the top. I know this is sounding complicated, but essentially it's, it's a very consistent, stable cooking environment um, that takes uh, just – commercial size pans and so it really is like cooking in a commercial kitchen where you can pull out these these large pans the um the size and space in there is brilliant and um it's it's incredibly insulated so once you get get the unit up to up to temp it just holds it very very consistently and and it really because it's got that real hard locking latch door just nothing escapes no moisture it just it's just locked in there so it's cool i love it Sounds awesome. I I put one on my uh, on my Christmas list. Oh, you should. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to hand the mic over to uh to Matthew now. Um Matthew, what would you like to ask Ralph? Um right, Ralph. Uh, first off, thanks thanks for uh for giving me this opportunity, mate. Um same with you, Ben, as per usual. Um one thing that I notice with a lot of people whether it be on the ABA page or on, on my own Facebook page with friends and stuff to have it is that they're asking more and more about how to cook briskets well, um, and I just thought, have you got any tips for uh, for new cook uh, new cures on on selecting and cooking a brisket? Yeah, you know, I think that's um, probably the largest question that we all ask each other because brisket is such a tough cut of meat to cook, and um, for anyone getting into it, you can you can have a really expensive mistake and um, so I'll break it down to a couple of, I think a couple of um, piece of advice I'll give you. The first one is um, always watch someone else cook it before, before doing it yourself. So um, before you go out and buy that piece of meat and before you, you know, everyone gets really excited and runs around and grabs a big bit of meat and chucks it in and 10 minutes before they put it on, they, they ask a question on a, on a Facebook thread, Hey, how to cook it. So, Watch someone else doing it from end to end just to see what's involved and what you're looking for and, what, and, and how it's going to taste. Um, and hopefully that person that you're learning from has cooked a fair few briskets and, and we all love talking about our own little secrets or tips on how to cook it. So that was what I did. I, I watched other people. The other thing that I'd recommend is, is um, see if you can get yourself on a course find out whoever is um, running a course on how to cook briskets. So um, these are run every now and again, depending on which city you're in. Um, sometimes I think um, the ABA organise some masterclasses from visiting um, barbecue personalities from overseas. So 
I've been to uh, a pretty thorough brisket class by um, Chris Marks from Little Pigs Barbecue, and um, seeing seeing it right in front of you being prepared and knowing what to do is so much different and and more beneficial than watching any YouTube video or following a book. You know, there's nothing that beats seeing it in the flesh and then asking those pertinent questions as as they arise contextually. So I think um, going to a course. Um, watching someone else and then just approach it in a way that is low risk. So start off maybe with a flat or a pointing, for example. So for those listeners that don't know, the brisket is made up of kind of two two um, two point. Uh, sorry, not two points, two cuts or, or two substructures within the within the um, brisket itself. And um, I, I would start with a point. It's it's a lot more forgiving and it just eases you into it. Um, I've certainly made the mistake before of just cooking a whole brisket and, and the, the, um, the flat comes out pretty dry because you, you, you're trying to, you know, cook the whole thing at once and uh, you, you just scratch your head at the end of the day and go, where did it all go wrong? So um, definitely those, those two points would be a, a good start. Um, does that help? Yeah, right. yeah. Um, the next one would be sorry. The next one would be um, just um, strike up a relationship with a butcher that really understands the kind of cut that you're looking for. So, um, giving you a, a choice brisket cut and, and letting you know where um, the animals come from. Sometimes seasonality has a big factor. So, um, winter they might be a little bit leaner, or depending on the, the kind of brisket, the brand. You know, we we use quite a bit of Cape Grim. They tend to come out quite well. Or Rangers Valley came out really well as well. See that? Well as well, well, well. That wasn't very good. Um, yeah. So uh, meat, the meat that you choose has a big impact on the end output, um, and a lot of praying. Quite frankly, you know, you, you learn and and you, you're just sitting there guessing, like, what am I doing? Am I, am I trying this? Am I, am I trying that? And and for me, I would much rather learn through everyone else's mistakes. And so um, I, I, I'm always lending my ear as well. I'm I'm learning. How to perfect brisket as well, and um, I don't think you ever quite perfect it. You, you're always learning. If I could ask a question, uh, just on the back of that, um, everybody's mad about burnt ends right now. So when when you're doing burnt ends, do you cook a point and a flat separately, or do you cook one and then separate them partway through, or what's your general approach to burnt ends? We've tried just about every configuration. We've we've cooked it all as one, and then magically sawn off some choice burnt ends and, and, and treated them like a little baby in their own little, own little um, you know, tinfoil tent and, you know, and then they come out and some days they're, they're like, um, like God's jewels and then other days they come out like mush and we haven't, we haven't done anything really that different. But um, I, I think uh, everyone, every team has their own little secret technique or, or go-to techniques with um, – with burnt ends, but um, for us, we, we're always uh, we're always learning, and um, I think at the moment we're we're experimenting with both techniques, and I, I still haven't worked out which which gets the best result. But um, I think beyond where and how you cut it, it it's more about the flavour profile and, and making sure that it has that genuine beefy natural flavour rather than being swamped in in all those artificial sources and I think there's a misconception that a burnt end should be like this lollipop um, kind of caramelized dripping thing, this jewel. 
but uh, I, I'm of an opinion that um, that sh- that should be the opposite. We we should taste a, a lovely little cube of of beefy goodness that really brings out the flavour of the the meat itself. I've often heard the uh, all the top pitmasters, uh, such as yourself, saying that um, the sauce shouldn't overpower the meat. The sauce should add to the flavour of the meat. So that's that's quite interesting to uh, to, to hear that coming from you as well. So uh, yeah, there's a there's a good lesson in that. Absolutely, and I tell you, what, I couldn't be uh, it couldn't be stronger in the category of pork ribs, where I see a lot of people just slathering their pork ribs with their own secret sauce, and the only thing you taste is the secret sauce. And um, I, I don't know about you, but I love the flavour of pork, and and to bite into a pork rib and taste pork is is nirvana for me. And you, you let those the seasonings and the sauces just highlight or accent or give it that point of difference, but. So it certainly shouldn't be the leading note within the um, within the flavour itself. Definitely, definitely. Alrighty, it's time to pick our best question for the winner of our Coastline Barbecues gift voucher. So, just to recap, we had Brett with his mission statement question. We had Jared with his advice for up and coming kids. We had Jay with his question about the beards. Daniel with the cookbook question, Alan with the Pro-Q stretch question, and then Matt's question about briskets. Look, they're all great questions uh, and, and funny too, like Jay's right up there. Um, if, if I award him, then it would look like I'm brown-nosing to the head of ABA or, or one of the one of the co-founders, so I definitely want to avoid that. Um, I think for sheer audacity of of um, snooping, uh, I would have to give it to Brett for for coming out there and just basically blatantly asking what is the DNA of the Shank Brothers brand. So um, <laughs> hats off to Brett. I reckon he deserves the prize. All right. <laughs> Congratulations, Brett, mate. We'll get that gift voucher out to you shortly. So, Brother Ralphie, for the last question before I let you go, what would be your top three pieces of advice for new teams? Um, I think advice number one would be um, understand the dynamic of, it, of your team. Like work out um, your strategy on who's going to be doing what and a bit of a, uh, a running order for, for who's, who's cooking what or how you're going to run the weekend. So a bit of a plan of attack would be, would be good. Um, we sometimes run a, a bit of a, a visual, visual diagram explaining when the hand-in times are or who's cooking what and what temperatures. So a bit of a, a running list is, is really good. That's tip number one. Tip number two would be um, always pack just enough beer and whiskey so you don't completely lose it and end up um, asleep in someone else's um, camp uh, with three hours to go before hand-in. But Mate, you obviously I, want to I did that one so. time. <laughs> oh, did you? Yeah, well, <laughs> no, haven't no, we no, all? No. I think we all have. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you've got to have enough, right, to to stay hydrated during the day and, and make sure that you keep cool under pressure. So uh, I think that's tip number two. And um, tip number, number three would be um, make friends with your neighbours uh, on any comp. We're all there to um, have a good time and to socialise. And so the first thing you should do when, when setting up your marquee is um, go and have a chat to your friendly neighbours and you never know, they could be feeding you dinner by the end of the night or, or giving you that missing ingredient you forgot about. So um, that's pretty crucial as a, new, as a new team. So I hope that gets people started. Absolutely. Thank you very much. All right, I'm going to throw the mic over to you for a couple of minutes now so you can give some shout-outs and tell people where they can track you down on the interwebs. 
Cool. Well, I mean, firstly, um, you know, I'm speaking on behalf of uh, um, Mike, who, who is one of the co-founders of Shank Brothers. So big shout out to him. Without him, um, we wouldn't have created this brand. And and then next to the um, boys who also uh, get in there and uh, make our competition team the, the, the success it has been. So um, Chris and Al, they're um, great characters and they're really unique. They bring so much to it. So um, thanks, boys, for all your work. Over, over this year on the comp scene and um, we've obviously come home with some fantastic results so thanks very much for that uh, and as far as um, the, the, the um, community of supporters we've got so many um, but what I'll do is at the risk of offending a few I'll, I'll stick with a few and um, just highlight probably the, one of our biggest supporters and sponsors and that is um, Meet at Billy's and Billy and his team have just been fantastic um, ever since our inception in supporting us with crucial meat, um, collaborating on a number of fronts and, and making sure that um, we're not just following the pack, that we're trying new things and, and they're about creativity too and, and growing the scene. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Josh at Aussie Barbecue, he's always a great supporter and um, is a great advocate of ours and so thanks again for all your help. Uh, and then our great mates, Rob and Tammy from Radar Hill. I mean, without um, without these guys, I think the la- landscape of Australian low and slow would be quite different. Um, they, they represent a brand with such passion and, th- and their products are so great that we've certainly enjoyed um, and relished cooking on their um, offset smokers and um, it's something that we'll continue to do for a long time. And um, finally, ProQ, they, um, they're, they're also a brand that I love because I love their products. So to Ian, Ty and Louis, um, thanks for um, partnering with us on, on various projects and um, enabling us to try your smokers and, and I think it was a secret ploy for us to buy them. But uh, anyway, it's all great. Um, so, yeah, that, they're just a few of many people that are involved in our barbecuing lives and, uh, yeah, it's been fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Brother Ralph. I've got uh, much, much gratitude and respect and thankfulness for you coming online today and uh, letting us pick your brains for what we're up to over an hour now. So uh, I appreciate that you're a busy man and you've got places to be and things to do. So thank you very much. Uh, Thanks for having me on, Ben. And uh, I look forward to uh, hearing all the podcasts throughout uh, the season. And and, um, I I know I'm going to learn a hell of a lot along the way too. Awesome. Thanks very much. I'll, I'll see you next time. Cheers, Ben. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Smoking Hot Confessions podcast. Head on over to smokinghotconfessions.com for recipes, tips, and Ben's own confessions. <laughs>